Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. We are in Revelation 14, and the tide is turning. And I'm grateful for that because, like I said, many of you have said, My goodness, preacher, how long are we going to be in Revelation? Oh, well, my friends, the tide is turning. The changing of the tides causes water to come in and move away from the shore. So this is due to the gravitational attraction of the sun, the moon, upon the oceans of the earth. And so when the tide is low at the beach, you have lots of room to enjoy the beach, right? You can spread out, you can do your sandcastles, you can put your umbrellas out. But when it's at high tide, you are elbow to elbow in some beaches with, with some people. So much for social distancing. But the truth of the matter is, is that people who have been navigating or living near bodies of water have dealt with the changing of the tides for centuries. I can remember that there was a marina in uh, Wilmington that where if you had a boat that was bigger than, um, a little bit bigger than a John boat, and you went out in the water on the Masonboro Sound or the Masonboro, if you went out to the island or even went out to the, the intercoastal waterway, if it was low tide when you came back, you just have to wait because your, your boat wouldn't make it. And the truth is the tides are changing. And this morning we are dealing with a, an alternate version of turning of the tides. And that has an idea of changes happening to the direction or the results of certain actions, bringing change and either positive or negative consequences. So to give us our definition for today, we see some momentum shifting as these tides are changing. And so I want to show you, this is the dictionary meaning of the word momentum. Momentum means strength or force gained by motion or by a series of events. So in chapter 14, we see the tides are changing. The great tribulation of seven years is beginning to come to the end. And we think back and God begins to pull back all of the access that he's given to Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet in chapter 13. Because I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if you read chapter 13 by itself and don't put it into context, it looks pretty bleak. But chapter 14 begins to show glimpses of the rewards that await those who are faithful to him during the great tribulation. And so my prayer is, is that you will find hope in Jesus Christ today. For those that have been discouraged by all the evil that we've seen in Revelation and all the evil that we see in our world today, doom and gloom, we have found this in spades of Revelation. But take heart and have courage because the hope of heaven through Jesus Christ arrives today. Let's jump right in. The first thing we see, the Lamb and the 144,000. So if you are still wondering about the 144,000, you can look on our Facebook page or on our website, our sermon cast, and there's a sermon on chapter 7 that deals with that. But uh, the 144,000 are mentioned again. It says, Then I saw the Lamb on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like a roar of a mighty ocean, waves, 
a rolling of loud thunder, and it was like the sound of many harpists playing together. As we look at this, we see first and foremost, we now have after the, the all hell breaking loose chapter of verse or chapter 13, we now see the Lamb and Mount Zion. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. He is the real Messiah. And we see Mount Zion reference. For those of you that don't know what Mount Zion is, it literally could mean the network of mountains and hillsides that make up the Temple Mount in Jerusalem to which you can go and even see today. It has been prophesied that Mount Zion, or, or if you hear Mount Zion, Jerusalem would be the same thing. It is prophesied that Jerusalem is a place where the Messiah gathers his redeemed and reigns over the earth. We see that all the way back from Psalm 48, all the way, we see it in Isaiah, in Joel, in Obadiah, in Micah. All of these things are foretold. And so the fact that we see the 144,000 tells us something very important. The question would be, during the Great Tribulation, does God preserve his people? And without going all the way back and discussing the 144,000 in full detail again, I can tell you this much. The 144,000 were a 144,000 sealed, sealed, protected Jews. So the fact that we saw them mentioned in chapter 7 and that they are standing here in chapter 14 means that God was to his word. They were untouched and they were with him. We can go back to Daniel chapter 3 where God preserved the young Jewish men. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were in the fire? God preserved them. My friends, if God is calling you to serve him, he will preserve you as well. Now here in chapter 14, they stand victorious on Mount Zion with Jesus the Messiah showing them that nothing, not even the worst beast, not even Satan himself could touch them. Because they were under God's protection. And notice it says in there that the Father's name was written on their foreheads. You may remember in chapter 13 where evil made a, a, um, an attempt to be like that. And they tried to copy that. Each head had a name. The beast had each name or each head had a name on it that blasphemed God. The Antichrist also instructed all of his believers to take his mark on their forehead. So you have the sealed 144,000 that have the name of God sealed on their forehead. Then you have this, this beast. Now remember, it's not a literal beast. It was a, a, a metaphor, a comparison. But each one of the heads represented a different nation or a different ruler that blasphemed God. And so we have that set up and there will be... When you see that seal on somebody's forehead of the 144,000, I got news for you. It's not going to be a Homeland Park Baptist Church logo on it. It's not going to be the Southern Baptist logo. It's not going to be the Presbyterian logo. It's not going to be the non-denominational and the full gospel. It is going to be the, the label of followers of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine when we go to heaven and we say, well, hello, uh, uh, we want the Southern Baptist section. They're going to say, what is that? Oh, we don't want all that. We don't want to be with all them full gospel people. They get a little too crazy. I'd like to be a little bit more reserved and quieter in my heaven. It ain't going to be like that. They're all going to be Christians and we're all going to be, 
worshiping the Savior, different languages, different colors of skin, different everything, but we are all going to be as one. We will have the mark of the name of God, the one true God. No denominations will there be in heaven. And also, I love this part. When we go to heaven, we better grab our guitars. Because if you notice, it says that there were harps playing. Now, if you go back and you say, well, preacher, I don't play guitar. You will one day. But the truth of the matter is, this is a callback to where if you remember them talking about in the first couple of chapters of the throne of God, where the elders were encircled around God's throne playing harps. See, all of this stuff is coming together. It was in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, that talks about them having the harps. And then we go on to verse 3. The great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders, again referenced in Revelation 5, no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. There's a reason you may not have realized that while we sang two hymns this morning, but there was two reasons. Number one, take my life, lead me, Lord. That was for the missions theme for our Annie Armstrong offering. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul is because of this that we sang that hymn earlier. Notice here that the 144,000 are standing on the top of Mount Zion while the throne of God comes down to them. Now, it's believed that some people think that, that we can go to heaven when we worship. But what we see here is that heaven came down when they worshiped. And my friends, when we worship, whether it be a Southern Baptist in a church like this, or our full, full Pentecostal people, or whoever, whoever's worshiping Jesus Christ, however they are worshiping Him, when we worship, it's not about getting us to heaven, but bringing heaven down to here. God comes and visits with us. And we see that heaven comes down to the earth. We have the Lamb of God standing on the Temple Mount, of Jerusalem, we have the 144,000 that have been untouchables through the whole seven years of the great tribulation. And so when we worship, we are not taken to God, but God comes to us. Amen. God comes to us today, even in the midst of this service. God, it's not about us trying to reach to God and failing. That's religion. A relationship with God means that He reaches down to you. He captures your heart and He comes to you where you are, regardless of the mess that you've made of your life, regardless of how good you think you are. He comes to you. Worship should focus our hearts and minds on Him more clearly. Then we see a description of the 144,000. In verse 4, it says, They have kept themselves as pure as virgins. In other words, They are virgins who have not defiled themselves with women, following the Lamb wherever He goes. And they have been purchased from among the people of earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. They have told no lies, and they are without blame. What is the reason that that is included there? It's included there to show us as readers that those 144,000 will be sexually and morally pure. The fact that they are are sealed believers makes a lot of sense. And, and you may think that, well, why in the world is that important? 
Can you imagine as, as, as much smut and, and awful things that run through our internets and the homes of people and, and everywhere, the, the sexual immorality that is everywhere? Can you even imagine what it's going to be like during the Great Tribulation? The only thing I can even remotely resemble it to is when uh, I was a seminary student. When you go to New Orleans, you've got to check out Bourbon Street. Whew. I'm telling you, that was the sewer of mankind. And I don't judge the people that are doing that and all of that mess, but I'm telling you, when I saw that, I thought, this little country Southern Baptist boy ain't never seen nothing like this. But when we get to these days in the last, the Great Tribulation, it is going to be everywhere. And so can you imagine the temptation of anybody wanting to live for God during the Great Tribulation? If it's ramped up now, I mean then, more than it is now, it is going to be almost unbearable. That is why those 144,000 are sealed. And they are, in, they are pure. And also the Paul recommends celibacy in troubled times. He says, look, if you if you can, be celibate, be single. But if you can't, follow God's precepts for that. And then from a pragmatic standpoint, think about this. Think if you're the 144,000 and you have a family. You have a wife. You have children. And then in the great tribulation, somebody, some force, some spirit, some something comes to you and says, you either recant or I'm going to kill your wife or your child. Makes it real, doesn't it? So they had nothing to hinder them. They were sealed and they were there to lead the way for those during the great tribulation. And it says they were following the Lamb wherever He goes. Folks, salvation was, has been, and will always be about following Jesus Christ. People come to Jesus Christ during the great tribulation just like they come to Jesus Christ today. They come to Jesus Christ. They admit that they are sinners. They repent from their sin. They confess it. Jesus washes them clean. They accept him, and then they become his child. It's not about anything else. In all of life, from Genesis to Revelation, it is all about Jesus Christ. People will get saved throughout the Great Tribulation, just as they do today. If you look at the second half of verse 4, it says, They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering, or the first fruits." Referencing the 144,000 to God and the Lamb. The second thing that we see is, let's talk about the three angels that are mentioned here. Verses 6 to 11. The first angel, angel number one. Angel number one, the theme here is choose to worship God now. Choose to worship God now. It says, and I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim the people who belong to this world. To every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. The angel here is broadcasting the gospel, much like the emergency broadcast system. Right now, we get upset if we're watching our favorite TV show or listening to something in our vehicles, and all of a sudden... You hear that awful sound, and it just it messes up your favorite song that was on the radio or your favorite television show. 
and you just kind of over, you bypass it. It's really different when all of a sudden they say, look, there's a possibility of a tornado touching down in your community, and then it comes on. Totally different response, isn't it? Now you're glued to it, wanting to know what's going on. So here we see, near the end of the Great Tribulation, the angel is, is going back and forth in the sky, sharing the gospel, calling people to repent. What is this angel saying? This angel is saying, hey folks, last chance. Last chance. Judgment is coming, so choose today which side you want to be on. God's or Satan. And you know, just on a side note, Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 lets us know that at the end of the day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess on earth and under earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This assures us that one day everyone will either give glory to God, either by choice or through defeat and submission. But one day God will get the glory he is due from everyone. So there are those these people that think that they know more than God. They think that there is no God. They think that they are a God. I got news for you. All of us one day will will bow before the one true God. And those that refuse the truth of the gospel today will be forced to face it eventually. Those who refuse the truth of the gospel today will be forced to face it eventually. And when we see that, that doesn't mean we say, I'll wipe my hands of those people. They're going to get what they deserve. No, it leads me to be more vocal about the gospel, more vocal about Jesus Christ, because I don't want people to be in that position. I know there's going to be, but I don't want it to be because I was too lazy or disobedient not to tell somebody about him. It's worth mentioning that this is the only occurrence in Scripture where we see angels preaching the gospel. Why is that? Because that's our job. We know that because of the Great Commission. We've been given the responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to share the gospel. The second angel in verse 8, it says, (coughs) Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is falling, the great city is falling, because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. We're going to talk a lot more about Babylon in chapter 17. But Babylon represents the fall of the organized worship. Some of you have heard about this one world religion where there will be religion during the Great Tribulation, but it will not, it will be, it will seem like they're worshiping God, but they're going to be worshiping themselves. They're going to be worshiping sexual immorality. They're going to be worshiping the worst of man. And we're going to see the fall of that, or they will see the fall of that. Prayerfully, we're not going to be there when that happens. The third angel, verses 9 through 12, God's wrath is coming. Then the third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. Underline that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. They must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath. God's cup of wrath. That's that's key. 
and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. Folks, people with the mark of the beast, they have it because they choose it, and they will face God's wrath. During the great tribulation, no one will accidentally get the mark of the beast. This is not something where you sign up for something with an email, then all of a sudden you get 20 different email lists of different products because you signed up for it. People will knowingly get the mark of the beast because they want to worship the beast. They want to be a part of the economic system. They want to be a part of what's going on at that time. And to many, it'll be a pledge of allegiance. Just like we used to do the Pledge of Allegiance in schools before school started every day. It'll be a pledge of allegiance, a pledge of allegiance to the Antichrist and his government. Again, if you want to officially exist on the grid to buy, to sell, to eat, and to work, you will have to take this mark. But let's talk about drinking the wine of God's anger. It says in there, God's wrath, the cup that is full of God's wrath. Plain and simple, it's talking about God's anger and wrath. The idea that God holds a cup of wrath, which he makes those under judgment drink, is expressed more than 13 times in the Bible. This is the very cup when Jesus is pleading with his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's pleading with them, with, with his Father, To the point where he's sweating drops of blood. And he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't talking about the crucifixion. He was talking about the cup that God has that is filled with his wrath, that has your name on it. And Jesus says, no, I'll drink it for them. Because of the cross. Everything, of all of God's wrath, 100% of it, that was meant for you and that was meant for me, Jesus drank it, Jesus bore it, and Jesus endured it, Jesus died for it, and praise God, Jesus' resurrection, and now He can forgive you for it. That is why we are in Revelation. That is why we are talking about the wrath of God. You will not hear the wrath of God preached in many churches but God is a God of wrath because sin is so important that it weighs on us. We have a sin debt. That is why for him not to take sin, for God not to take sin seriously, it would be the same thing as him saying the death of my son didn't mean much. That's why God has wrath. That's why God judges sin. That's why God gives us a way out. We see here in the second half of verse 10, fire and brimstone. Some translations say burning sulfur. And they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. They will have no relief day or night. For they have worshipped the beast and his statue and they have accepted the mark of his name. We can all get behind the fact that when we get our, as Christians, when we get our transformed heavenly body, we will be in heaven forever. Amen. 
But we don't like to admit that that also means those that go to hell will have transformed bodies for the sole purpose of enduring torment for the rest of eternity. That's what their heavenly body is going to have. That's what their transformed body is going to have. A body meant for punishment. Eternal punishment. Folks, I hate to tell you this. And again, you won't hear this in a lot of places. And I'm, I'm very far from a hell and brimstone preacher. But folks, like a golfer, I'm playing the ball where it lies. Hell is not a made up place. Hell is not a symbolic gesture or a high concept. Hell is what the scripture warns us it is. It is a place of torment and burning sulfur. The thought of this is as disturbing as the thought of the smell. When I read this, I don't know if you know what burning sulfur smells like, but it would be like a burning rotten egg. It is repugnant. It is something you you don't want to smell. And those who worship the Antichrist and receive his mark will endure this wrath. And folks, avoiding to think about or to discuss hell today is pointless because it is something that is unavoidable to those who choose their sin over Jesus. Then we see in verse 12, rest comes for those who believe. It says, this means that God's holy people must endure persecution, patiently obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, the comfort this one verse will bring to those who come to know Christ during the Great Tribulation. This is better than booking a summer vacation for the following year in the dead of winter. You ever done that? You say, woo, I'm going to go ahead. It's so cold. It's so nasty. But I tell you what, we're going to go to the beach in the summer. Woo, I'm ready. That's the same thing here. And they're like, look, this is awful now. This great tribulation is tough. But I know that it's going to get better. God encourages those who are suffering to stand firm during trials by focusing on the rewards to come. That's the problem with us today. We want instant gratification for everything. Also, we see in verse 13, the work we do on earth is remembered in heaven. Write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. Folks, the patient endurance and work of the saints is remembered. Our work for Jesus and his kingdom goes with us into heaven. Some of you made a big sacrifice today to get yourself and your family together here at a church on the morning where you lost an hour. You might think, boy, an hour makes a difference. It does. But you persevered. Some of you taught a Bible study lesson. Some of you will be in committee meetings later on today. Some of you will have sung. Some of you will have to try to get your, your kids lunch and and get settled down and do some projects that you do and get ready for the next week. And you made church a part of this. I'm telling you, I'm banking on this. Scripture backs this up. The things that you do when you do it for the Lord in church will have eternal rewards. When the day of judgment comes, when the day of judgment comes, you will never regret anything you did for God. Or his name. I can promise you that. 
I can promise you that you will not regret anything you did for God or in his name. Well, let's let's round the corner here. In verses 14 through 20. The harvest of the earth. The harvest of the earth. Verse 14, then I saw a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Actually, if you were to go back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel has a very similar vision regarding this. The Son of Man is a title that Jesus used for himself. And no longer does Jesus wear a crown of thorns, my friends. Jesus wears his crown of heavenly royalty. This crown is a crown worn that represents victory, not defeat. Jesus won the battle for our salvation. Verse 15 says, Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting in the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. The term ripe here means that God will exercise judgment over this world only when every last chance has been given for someone to repent. My friends, let me tell you, we live in a day that acts like that will never happen, but God's grace has a limit. Judgment will come. Just like when you use your credit cards, the bill will come. And we will have to pay. The choices that we make today will make a difference. Verse 17, after that, another angel came from the temple in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel had power to destroy with fire, came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with the sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the wine press of God's wrath. Again, we see God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath. And the grapes were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and the blood flowed from the wine press. Excuse me, in a stream about 180 miles long, as high as the horse's bridle. Folks, what a vivid picture of judgment. It was this verse right here that was the actual inspiration for the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Maybe you remember it. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. And his truth is marching on. Here we see the image of the second coming of Jesus as a harvest, as also communicated in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. If you remember those parables, one of them was about the farmer, and the other one was about the wheat and the tares. Those were parables, illustrations that Jesus was giving about this moment. And where it says, well, for that, the implication is that true believers will not be separated from those who merely go to church until after the final harvest. And where it says blood flowed 
from the wine press and the stream about 180 miles long. It means the carnage from the last battle of Armageddon will be incomprehensible. What a more powerful picture can God paint of his coming judgment? Evil things, they have the upper hand now. But chapter 14 reminds us that God is in control. A lot of people think that at the end of the day, there's going to be God in heaven and there's going to be Satan in hell and there's going to be some separation between the two. But no, you're not going to be devoid. God will know about hell because it's God's hell. God created it for Satan and all of those that follow him. But we see here that God speaks with the language of grace today, my friend. In churches today, when you hear messages and you hear about the grace and the mercy that is afforded us because of Jesus' sacrifice, he speaks with the language of grace today. But one day he will speak of judgment. That's kind of like some of you, if you ever had parents or grandparents or, or some type of mentor that they always played the, the, the softy, the easygoing, you know, the, they'll spoil you to death kind of thing. And that moment that they turn on you, all of a sudden they get mad at you. You're like, my goodness. I'm telling you, God is a God of love. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. That's why he gave us his word. That's why we are here today. But God is also a God of wrath. So he, he doesn't take the sacrifice of his son lightly. God's grace is given freely. But it was not cheap, my friend. One day, God will deliver the wrath that sin deserves. Because Jesus' blood costs too much to give people who refuse it a pass. Do not refuse God's grace today, my friends. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for our time of worship this morning. And dear Heavenly Father, it is my prayer that if there's one person here today that has realized that They don't know for sure that their eternity is secure with you. They're not sure that Jesus Christ has forgiven them of their sins. May they come forward this morning during this invitation and nail that down. For many believers that are here today that are just kind of existing, Lord, it's more than just existing. It's serving, Lord. May you encourage them to do that because these days, this what we're reading draws closer with every minute. If someone wants to join this church to get baptized or just want to come to the altar and pray, they can do it at this time. This is your invitation, Lord, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?